This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Today, we'll talk about the parts of the Mueller report we are not being allowed to see. They're part of a larger problem of government secrecy that's threatening to cripple our democracy. Karen Greenberg will comment. But first, the New York Times and Bernie. Trump Watch starts right now. Bernie is back on page one of the New York Times, our national newspaper of record. But their report last weekend was not about his new plan to save public schools, the most progressive education program in modern American history. It was not about his proposal to end all subsidies for oil and gas companies. Instead, it was about a trip he made to Nicaragua in 1985, more than 30 years ago. They thought it was, in their words, quote, a trip that might have unsettled another visitor, close quote. In other words, they didn't like it. How do we explain the New York Times coverage of Bernie Sanders? For comment, we turn to Amy Willens. She was Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's best known for her reporting on Haiti, especially her award-winning book, Farewell, Fred Voodoo. And she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. Amy, welcome back. Thanks, John. Well, what was the big news in the New York Times page one story last weekend about Bernie? What was their lead? The biggest news in the story was that Bernie was at a rally uh, for the Sandinistas where there was a chant that came up from the crowd. It went like this, here, there, and everywhere, the Yankee will die. And Bernie observed this chant and... It was chanted while he was at the, at the rally. We don't know what he observed or didn't observe. I have to ask, is this really news? Our colleague at The Nation, Eric Alterman in a March 28th column, discussed this very same Sandinista rally that Bernie attended in 85. Is this really news now? It's strange. Alterman quoted it and said uh, that the Republicans are claiming that they have footage of this rally, maybe of Bernie Sanders at the rally. So he quoted it a few months ago, and the New York Times failed to take notice. Eric Alterman got this from Newsweek in 2016 when the same exact information was presented. And Google is a wonderful thing. Michelle Goldberg, now New York Times op-ed columnist, quoted this same line in 2016 in May during the primary, saying this is what a Republican attack on Bernie Sanders would look like. So this was already a story in 2016, but at that point the story was what the right will do to Bernie if he wins the nomination. But now it's the New York Times taking Bernie down. So concerned must they be that he not get the nomination. The Times, by the way, has a bit of a history with Bernie and the news. And I would say, having followed it, that they have been consistently negative about his entry into national politics. So this is a story where the Times put a huge amount of work into doing research on the period when Bernie was mayor of Burlington, Vermont in the mid-80s. They devoted a total of 4,500 words to this trip Bernie made to Nicaragua in 1985, which they said their source was a study that they did of, quote, hundreds of speeches, handwritten notes, letters, 
political pamphlets and domestic and foreign newspaper clippings from a period spanning nearly a decade when he was mayor of Burlington. And it, all they got was this lousy T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is the kind of project that really only the Times undertakes these days. And nevertheless, this is all they found? All they got was a story from at least two years ago, three years ago, really. It's amazing. As they say, Burlington before Sanders was a sleepy college town. So maybe there was not much happening in Burlington during those 10 years that they examined so closely other than Bernie going to a rally. And of course, the story here is that left-wing mayors in many towns in America, especially during the Reagan years, had a, quote, foreign policy. Santa Cruz did, Santa Monica did, Davis, California did. This was not really an unusual thing. The Times, though, is very focused on the politics of the Sandinistas. Who were the Sandinistas? Who was Daniel Ortega? They go to an expert who says Mr. Sanders should have known better than to, quote, fawn over Mr. Ortega. So this guy was a former Reagan uh, advisor who helped oversee uh, Latin American policy for the Reagan administration in precisely Nicaragua. He's obviously not an objective expert, even if he's been, you know, sort of run through the think tank mill and made so. This is a sort of a historical question. A leftist mayor in 1985 supported the Sandinistas. Remind us who the Sandinistas were, which is what the New York Times seems to have forgotten. So the Sandinistas were a group who were trying to overthrow the uh, dictatorship of the U.S.-backed Anastasio Somoza. And eventually... They succeeded, and this, of course, became an issue in American politics with one side fearing that they were communists who would be supported by the Soviet Union and the other side hoping for a more progressive rule in Latin America. Then when Reagan was elected in 1980 with his hardline anti-communism, he wanted to intervene in all these Latin American countries where similar things were happening. And uh, Nicaragua and the Sandinistas became a central issue in American politics. The Times researchers showed the thoroughness of their work on what Bernie did in 1985. Apparently, they not only studied, you know, memos from local meetings, but also boarding passes. Because this is what they, this is how they skewer Sanders' trip to Nicaragua. Sanders, and I quote, journeyed for 14 hours to reach Nicaragua. Switching planes, this is from the New York Times, in Boston, Miami, and San Salvador, and made a truncated tour of the violence-stricken country before the grand event in Managua. The grand event is the place where the the chant was chanted. You can see the depth and detail of their reporting by that Boston, Miami, and San Salvador stops. As if there's something wrong with taking 14 hours to get from Burlington, Vermont, to Managua, Nicaragua. After this report on Bernie's days as mayor of Burlington, when he made the college town into, quote, a haven for left-wing activism, after this appeared on page one of the New York Times over the weekend, Bernie called the Times and asked for a chance to reply, and they published another couple of thousand words of 
an interview with Bernie about this piece. Just to be fair, he had declined to be interviewed about the piece beforehand, no doubt being so irritated that it was being even reported on at this point. So the interview is remarkable in many ways. Bernie sort of provides a history lesson, like we have done here, who were the Contras, who were the Sandinistas, what was Reagan's foreign policy. The New York Times reporter who's questioning him, Sidney Ember, says, uh, if you heard the crowd chanting, the Yankee will die, would you have stayed at the rally? And his answer is, I think, Sydney, with all due respect, you don't understand a word I am saying. This interview itself then generated a whole new batch of commentary. Yes, rather than focusing on the, I think, important content of this conversation between Sidney Ember and Bernie Sanders and also the initial story and what that meant about the New York Times and the election and Bernie Sanders and their reporting. A bunch of people on Twitter focused instead on the fact that Sidney Ember is a female Sidney Ember, not a male Sidney Ember. And she's a young woman reporter and many women uh, showed up on Twitter to denounce Bernie for saying, with all due respect, do you even understand what I'm talking about? Yet, for me, as a person who actually lived through this moment in American history, when I read the New York Times story, the first thing I said was, does this reporter even know anything about this period in time? So Bernie's response seemed to me pretty fair, but to a lot of women, it seemed like a diss. To, to women, like he wouldn't have done it to a male reporter, I wonder. This is an example of how uh, gender politics and identity politics, which I utterly sympathize with in so many ways, can divert what is an important conversation that needs to be had by pointing out, you know, stupid or unnuanced attitudes in people's social behavior when there's actually an important current in American history and an issue about American foreign policy that's being discussed here. The part about the Bernie Sanders interview that bothered me the most was Sidney Ember asking him, after he has explained Reagan foreign policy in the 1980s, she asked him, is there anything you believed about Latin America or the Soviet Union in the 1980s that you no longer believe today? Bernie's answer is, no, the Soviet Union was an authoritarian dictatorship. That's what I believe then. That's what I believe is the case today. End of story. But the question, I have to say, as an old white historian of this period, that's a question from the HUAC days, the anti-communist investigations of the 50s, where you were required to say you have changed your mind about communism, radicalism, union organizing, and now you support the rightness of American policy. Again, I'm sure Sidney Ember has no idea what this question sounds like. And that is, it wasn't just HUAC that used to ask those questions. All sorts of interrogation groups all over the world asked that question. Have you changed your mind? Do you repudiate? Do you renounce? Put it on paper and sign it. So in conclusion... Why do you think the New York Times did this? Let us speculate. They're freaking out. First of all, Bernie has a lot of money and a lot of support. And the New York Times is freaking out. They don't 
agree with his progressive, socialist-based agenda. They maybe don't agree with the education policy he's outlining. They maybe don't agree with uh, free tuition to college. There are a lot of things that he supports that the New York Times might find disconcerting or too progressive, or they may feel that he'd be vulnerable in the election to be generous to them. Now, in the traditional conception of the mainstream newspaper, the editorial page expresses support or opposition to candidates, and the news pages are supposed to take a different approach. Yes, and if you read the initial story, as well as the interview, there is a decided bias against Sanders and against everything he stood for at that time and against everything he stands for now. There's just no way around it. You could pretend that these are the facts, ma'am, but they're not the facts. They're slanted. But I think, to be a tiny bit fair to the New York Times, they slant on every side of of the political spectrum right now. And certainly President Trump has been... (laughs) the victim of seeping opinion. That's what I call it, seeping opinion, which seeps right into the news pages. But we don't really mind when the victim is President Trump, who has all the power in the country. But it's disturbing to see this kind of non-factual slant go into the news when it's someone you've thought about a lot. And I'm not saying that I'm a Sanders supporter or that I would vote for him. But when I see this kind of thing that is so ahistorical and yet so slanted, I find it very disturbing. And I think the New York Times should just come out and put it on their editorial page. Amy Willens being a little bit fair to the New York Times. Amy, thanks for coming in today. Thank you, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. We're still thinking about the Mueller report and the parts we have not been allowed to see. It's not the only government document with blacked out parts. Are all of those redactions really necessary to protect our national security? Or are they part of a cover-up maybe of crimes by our leaders or of actions that would embarrass the president or his appointees. Karen Greenberg has been thinking about that. She's director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law and author of the book Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. She's also a regular contributor to Tom Dispatch and The Nation, and she also writes for the LA Times op-ed page. Karen Greenberg, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Well, the Mueller report is 448 pages long. How many redactions are there in it? Yeah, there's just about 1,000 redactions um, on about 40% of its pages. So um, I would say that's a considerable amount of redactions. Now, they have to give reasons for every redaction. What have they told us about why these 1,000 passages were not allowed to see? They told us a variety of things, basically four categories, but what they actually come down to is um, grand jury material that they say can't be reported um, and things that would tell you about other um, sources or compromised sources. So it's kind of the standard thing that you hear when we when they tell us why things are withheld, why things are redacted. And it's um, confusing, intentionally confusing, and it sounds like they're telling you specifics, but these are actually can be very broad categories. You know, 
What is it from the grand jury that had to be redacted? What is it that had to be redacted about a person? How many persons might it have compromised or given us too much information on? What it would tell us about, you know, one of the things they're worried about is ongoing investigations and how it might compromise ongoing investigations. Those can be very, very large categories. And what you'd really like are more narrow, more specific, um, and, and therefore more illuminating categories about why they needed to redact things. And where do we stand today on the effort by the House Judiciary Committee to see the full report? Well, it doesn't look like they are going to be able to see the full report. You know that Jerry Nadler has been very insistent that he wants to see it, um, and he hasn't been able to get the response he needs. And this is all part of just a larger attempt by this government to basically say the public does not have a right to see uh, certain things, and in particular things about the president and this administration. And this problem of excessive secrecy of blacked-out pages in government documents it isn't just the Trump administration that's guilty of this. These are the, just the latest examples of a problem that goes back long before Trump. And in your piece for The Nation and for the L.A. Times, you have cited some of the more notorious examples of withholding information from the public. One of the most important to me was the 9-11 Commission report on the World Trade Center attacks had some deletions. Right. It was on the joint congressional inquiry into basically the failures to prevent al-Qaeda's attacks on 9-11. And there were 28 pages about Saudi Arabia that were blackened out um, in, in the report and, you know, for years. And so it set the template, I think, for a lot of, of opening the door to the idea that redactions came hand in hand with what we were and weren't going to know about the war on terror from before 9-11 all the way through uh, to the present day. But it's certainly not the only time in American history that things have been redacted. And I think it's important to say there are certain things that need to be classified. There are certain things that, that do... Um, protect national security. And the, when, you, when you expand that category so wide, wide that you um, make people doubt that you're doing it for really for national security, as to, you alluded before, to um, not embarrassing um, a government, not letting illegal and extra-legal activities that went on by the government, at, at the hands of the government, be exposed then you begin to erode the public trust in the government saying, we have the right to classify, this is what we're classifying, and this is why. And so it's not just about the withdrawal of information. It's about the very fragile, at times, uh, conversation that goes on between a government and its citizen race. And in the United States, we have a wonderful law, the Freedom of Information Act, it says that in a democracy, not only does the government belong to the people, but the government's information belongs to the people. And according to the Freedom of Information Act, the government has an obligation to give any person, not just citizens, any person, any information in government files that they request unless, unless it falls under that small number of areas which we all agree should be exempt, personal privacy, I'm not allowed to see your tax returns, national security information, which if released would endanger the national security of the United States. Those are the biggest ones. You have looked at how much classification is going on now, how many 
pages reviewed under the Freedom of Information Act are being have been withheld lately. What did you find? So what's really interesting about this is how much classification uh, grew exponentially after 9-11. Between 2001 and 2005, the number of government documents classified per year actually doubled, and it has kept going apace, even during um, Barack Obama's time. And, and you know, President Obama made it very clear when he came into office that he wanted to reverse this sense of more and more government secrecy and to have as much transparency as possible. And it, it really turned out that the, the mechanisms that produced this kind of classification and overclassification just stayed just stayed in place. And so we dealing now in a world where there is the the res- I think the way it feels is that the safe thing to do is to classify. And the um and the penalty for overclassifying is what? Nothing. And so if you're a, an official and you're in the position of classify or not classify, it seems that the decision goes towards classification. That's how it feels on the end of this in, exponentially increasing number of government documents. Yeah, I learned from your work that the number of documents classified secret or top secret under Obama is 77 million. How is it possible to stamp top secret on 77 million pages. Well, it's a lot of different agencies and a lot of different departments, and it's a very good question. I mean, you think about the the number of um, work hours that are dedicated to this kind of classification, and it tells you something about what has happened to our government. We've learned from other sources that some of the official claims of national security exemptions actually conceal misconduct, violation of the law, war crimes by Americans. For instance, the reports on CIA torture at black sites were withheld from government documents. We learned about them from other sources. So this is where my interest in the redaction first first came into being, which was looking at the materials on torture, the memos that had authorized it, the reports that were written by the military about Abu Ghraib, and then later ones that were written about the, the CIA enhanced interrogation program. And more and more, what you'd find was uh, redaction after redaction after redaction. And just to your point is, don't we need to know as a country what we've done so we can think about either how to redress it or how to address our allies or to understand our standing in the world? I mean, there are, there are vast uh, ramifications of having this kind of secrecy about what we've done to others in the world. Um, and so this is this has been going on in a way that I think we've gotten rather complacent about it. Um, and look, the torture report um, that was done by the Senate, we never got to see. We've seen 600-page executive summary, but we haven't seen the rest of it. We know that, um, that tapes were destroyed uh, at the command of a high official in the uh, Central Intelligence Agency about um, that that documented um, the torture itself. So the erasing the record uh, for reasons of not letting people know what was done in their name as citizens of the United States um, has been a consistent theme uh, since the beginning, at least since the beginning of the war on terror. And how's it going under Trump? Well, now, 
now this is a whole different level because in addition to having um, an issue of redactions, as you brought up in, in the Mueller report, we have a, a profound and pervasive sense that information, that the American people don't deserve to have information and there's no legitimacy to their having to have information. What you're seeing going on right now with executive privilege, people not testifying before Congress, whether it's Don McGahn or whoever it is, then you're starting to see the, the bottom line there, the, the statement in the background is, we don't need to tell anybody. We don't need to have our information out there. We can protect ourselves from that. That is pernicious road to go down. And it has everything to do with journalists and you know how important their mission becomes to try to figure out what's going on. Um, and I think, therefore, in addition to redactions, the other side of this is the degradation of the press and the media. And it gets even worse under Trump. We've been talking here about preventing the public from learning what's in government records. Trump is starting a new policy of not even creating government records. I do think it's a major issue. I think... um one of the things that happened is there are categories of reporting that government has traditionally done as an act of um, reporting to the public that are no longer there. For example, the um, targeted killings and lethal drone use um, by the government, by the military. These were published under Obama. They are not published anymore. The same thing with civilian casualties, not wanting to report civilian casualties, which has always been problematic, but taking it to a new level, which is we're not going to publish these, we're not going to record these, we're not going to have these anymore, And which also brings us to the point of, as you know, President Trump has on many times made it clear that he thinks that people at his meetings, at meetings with him who take notes, are violating some kind of code, when in fact, the responsible thing to do, for example, if you're a lawyer, is to take notes, to be able to refer to them, to be able to create a record of fact. The undermining of, of a record, the undermining of facts, is actually something that is is important to a society's narrative, to the consciousness of a culture, um, and all of this is being intentionally compromised. Karen Greenberg, she wrote about the spread of government secrecy for Tom Dispatch, also for the LA Times and The Nation. Thank you, Karen. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want to trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.